Okay, so tonight, Be'ezer Sashem, we're going to be continuing with our series on the Ten Spheros, and tonight is going to be our first entry into the Spheros themselves. Now, as we spoke about last week, the Ten Spheros are comprised of ten kochos, ten interconnecting points wherein the essence of God, so to speak, can disclose itself through limitation for the sake of revealing itself in a minimized form, so that as it is accessible to things other than godliness, and these ten kochos are going to be referred to as Kesar, Chachma, Bina, Chesed, Gvura, Teferes, Netzachod, Yesod, and Malchus. Now, this week's class is going to be a class on Kesar. Now, Kesar is roughly translated as the crown, but the way we're going to be looking at Kesar, as we're going to understand, it's that which is koter. It's that which surrounds something. A koteras can mean a heading. It means that it is something that sits at the top of a system that is then going to descend and emerge from within it. And when discussing Kesser, as we're going to see, what we come upon almost immediately is a series of paradoxes. Before we can fully enter into Kesser and the reason we find paradoxes there, there's a singular introduction which we have to utilize, which is how the ten spheros, how this framework, how these ten kochos, this this limited space of limitation that in its essence is disclosing the unlimited without negating the unlimited aspect of the infinite, is going to be comprised of two separate sections. Now this 10, although it represents a kuma shlema, a full unit, there's going to be two separate spaces within this breakup of 10. And the way it's going to be broken up is the gimel ration, the first three spheros are going to be a category of their own with their own ontological status, their own halachos, so to speak. And the sheva yemei habinyan, or the sheva midos, and the seven lower spheros, which are going to have their own set of ontological or halachic characteristics, so to speak. Now, when speaking about the gimel ration, the first three spheros, as we saw anatomically in the mushal, in the metaphor of the human being of mibasari echze eloikai, we said that the keser is going to sit at the top of the cranium, like a koteras, like where the crown goes, something that surrounds the head of an individual, not necessarily finding a place within the body, but representing that point right above the body that connects the body with that which it is not, that connects the human being with everything that is inhuman and that is not human. The right brain on the right side is going to be chachma, which is representative of expansivity, of the ability to see everything in one particularized point that contains the all within it, the re'iyah of chachma, that my mind has saw a lot of wisdom of ene ha-chachma, and the left brain, which is going to be more constrictive and more detail-oriented and more representative of the origin of dinim and gvuros and limitation, is going to be associated with the left brain, which is going to be the space of bina. Now the gimoration are going to be keser, chachma, and bina. After Kesar, Chachma, and Bina, what we enter into are the Sheva Midos, the seven particularized traits, which instead of being associated with the intellectual or conceptual realm of thought as associated with the mind of the human being, the Midos themselves are going to be more imminent to us. The Midos are going to be our emotional states, the moods, the phenomenological windows through which we experience and perceive life. Not only experience life, but view life. We see our experience through these Midos. And that's going to start with Chesed, and it's going to go from Chesed, Gvur, Tiferes, Netzach, Yesod, to Malchus. 
Now, these two groupings that comprise the entirety of the ten spheros, the gimel ration, the three heads, and the seven lower aspects of the spheros, which are more imminent, are going to comprise a fundamental dichotomy when discussing the nature of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's relationship with the world, as well as our relationship with ourselves. The gimel ration, because they're associated with the head, because they're associated with the more transcendental aspects of spirituality as it is embodied within the human being and the world, are going to be more difficult to pin down. The Gimel Ration represent those transcendent aspects of ourselves, those parts of ourselves that we can identify, yet because of their superior quality and because of the closeness that they have in terms of their association with the infinite, they maintain and they retain certain halachos, certain laws of infinity. And one of the laws of infinitude that we discussed in the Shirem on Rav Kook and we discussed in the Shirem on the Leshem is that when it comes to the infinite, like the Rambam says and like the Leshem Paskins based on the Ariza in terms of our understanding of God, when it comes to the transcendental aspects of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the true form of infinitude, it's not so much what we can say positively about something, but rather our only grasp of these ideas is by way of negation. Meaning to say that because of their lofty nature and because of their residual attachment to the concept of infinity, that which is without limit and that which is without measurement, any attempt to determine the specific boundaries or limitations in any sort of positive assertion or terms is tantamount to heresy in the sense that by claiming that the keser or the chachma or the bina is, for example, black and not white or long but not short, is already negating the opposite from those gimelration. Because if I say that keser is light and not darkness, then what I am negating from keser is the capacity to contain darkness within itself. So any positive assertion, any positive statement or utterance that I apply to the Gimel Ration, to these three transcendental points within the Sphirotic order, is already also claiming the opposite, which is to say that because it's A, it's not B. And when it comes to the infinite, the infinite must be capable of containing both A and B in spite of the paradoxical or contradictory notion. So when it comes to the Gimelration, because of their lofty association, because they represent the apex or the beginning point or the origin prior to the beginning of all of the seven Yemosa Olam, of all of the days of existence and the spheros that we have association with, when it comes to understanding these Gimelration, it's more appropriate to say what cannot be said by way of apophasis by way of recognizing that at the end of the day, all positive assertions that attempt to delineate and define spirituality in specific terms is always already a limitation. So therefore, what we say must always be by way of negation. So for example, we say that the infinite is without limit. We don't say that the infinite can only apply itself in a space of measurement or non-measurement. We say it is without limit because all we can say is what it is not. We say that HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't have a body. We do not say that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is bodiless or incorporeal because by claiming that the infinite can only manifest within unlimited nature, we negate the possibility of Hashem and His infinite capacity to manifest within limitation as well. So like the Rambam says, at the apex of understanding spirituality or that transcendent space within existence, the proper way to the proper way to follow through in terms of understanding is by way of negation. Now, a mushal 
an example that can be used to describe this dichotomy or this binary between the two stages of the spheros, the first three, which are going to be the Kesar, Chachma, and Bina, which are associated with the mind, and then the seven lower spheros, which are going to be associated with the body and the emotions, can be understood as follows. Now we know that by Ben HaMetzarim, by the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash and the mournful process of history that the Jewish people go through on a yearly basis to commemorate the destruction of the temple and to mourn the practical absence of Kedusha and situatedness of Kedusha and by Tiyut and a place to go to and to feel at home in our lives, we commemorate by approaching the Ben HaMetzarim with different readings from the Torah. Now prior to Tishabav, prior to the commemoration of the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, which is associated with all of the manifold traumas that each and every individual experiences, as well as the collective experiences. Prior to Tishabav, we read Gimel de Paranusa. There are three Haftorahs that are read for the three weeks preceding Tishabav, which are associated with mournful presence and destruction and traumatic awareness. After Tishabav, after the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, they're going to be the Sheva Dinachemta. They're going to be the seven Haftoros which are associated with comfort. That Nachamu Nachamu Ami, that after the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, after being forced to live with the awareness of the trauma in the collective as well as the individual level, what we enter into is a time of comfort. And albeit it's not a complete comfort until things are restored to their proper status, but it's a hint or a remez or an inclination towards the comfort that we hope for in the future, as well as in the present moment where we try and dig deep enough into the present moment to disclose the future that exists within it. Now, Rav Tzadok HaKohen Lublin, based on this breakup of the three Haftoros that are associated with negativity and destruction prior to Tishabav, and the seven Haftoros that are associated with comfort and joy and, joy and hope of after Tishabav, asks a very simple question. He says, whenever we have the number 10, which is representative of a Kuma Shlema, which is representative of a full unit, because if the Spheros are representative of existence and they contain 10, then everything in existence is also going to carry with itself that mirror image, that mark, that imprint, that trace, that shadow of 10 as well. And the same halachos that apply to the 10 spheros, which are that the first three represent transcendental godliness, which, can, which cannot manifest within limited words or kalim, and the seven lower spheros, which can associated with words and measured by limitation and identified with positivistic attributes, he says, when we look at this breakup of the three upper and the seven lower, so very often the three upper, as we're going to see, are associated with transcendental spirituality, those things which remain in their ideal form, those things which are representative of the transcendent, unlimited, infinite capacity of God to assert his strength, so to speak, into the realm of fallen history. And the seven spheros, or the seven imehabinian, or the seven days of the week, or the seven millennia of history, represent the imminent form of our experience, the present nature of things, and their fallenness and their brokenness, albeit with the hope that they're still associated with the spherotic presence of Kedusha, nevertheless, the seven is representative of Shiva and Teva and nature and mourning. So he says it would have made sense if the Gimel, if the first three Haftoros are going to be associated with something transcendent because they're connected to Gimel Ration, and the lower seven are going to be associated with stress and darkness and limitation. But over here, by the Haftoros of before Tishabav and after Tishabav, what we confront is the fact that it's the opposite. The first three 
which are typically representative of transcendent goodness and its ideal quality, are going to be associated with paranusa, with destruction and mournful presence and trauma and negation. And the seven lower ones, which are typically associated with limitation and din, are the Shevet and which are going to be representative of hopeful comfort and kedusha. So Rav Tzadok HaKohen and Preet Tzadik asks in multiple places, why is it that the order is switched here? Why should the three, which are representative of that which is higher, associated with darkness, and the seven, which, the seven, which are very often associated with that which is lower, are associated with light? And Rav Tzadok HaKohen Melublin has an incredible cloud. And he says that when we talk about the transcendental gimel ration, when we talk about that impossibly distant presence of the three spheros which represent that loftiest place in existence as well as within our own consciousness, because of their transcendent nature, because of their transcendental removal from within the imminent plane of presence, because they leave the realm of language, because they cannot be captured in words or limited by measurement, they appear to us as dark. They appear to us as that which is outside the realm of order and outside of the realm of our ability to live with their expression. And because this darkness, this darkness that emerges by dint of the fact that we cannot positivistically grasp it, the darkness that emerges because we can't utilize our language to limit that which we're talking about, the Gimel Ration, the Kesar, the Chachma, and the Bina appear to us as dark. It's a darkness that doesn't stem from something fallen, but it's a Choyshech Elyon. It's a lofty darkness which remains dark because it is so removed from our grasp, so removed from our conscious awareness in the day-to-day of everyday life, that when we try and gaze into the properties of Kesar, Chachma, and Bina, even as they apply to our own psychological livedness within this world, they appear to be outside of our grasp and outside of our limited experience to the point that they appear dark. But Rav Sadok says this darkness is not because of a fallenness or a negation or a negativity, but it's a darkness that is only dark because it's a light that's so great that it blinds us. That the Gimel Ration, the Kesar Chachman Bina, which represent the transcendental relationship that the infinite maintains with finite creation, and due to the fact that it's so removed from us, it appears devoid of our grasp and our understanding, to our human eyes, it appears dark. And that's why the Gimel de Paranusa, these three Haftoros, which come before Tishabav, in spite of the fact that they seem to be associated with mournful watching over the anticipatory sense of destruction, they only remain dark in as much as we are unable to grasp them. But La'asid Lavo, in the future, or in each and every one of our particular lives, we have the capacity of tasting this on a day-to-day level in the Bechina of Oilamecha Tirebechayecha, that darkness, that apophatic negation of our ability to determine anything positively can be grasped in a way that it becomes accessible to us. That these paranios, these things which remain removed from us, in truth contain the deepest level of light to the point that they blind us. And the Shevet and Achemta, those midos that we have association with from Chesed down to Malchus, because we have a grasp of them, because we can have an actual conceptual relationship with these ideas, they're going to represent themselves to us and be disclosed to us as if they were light and graspable. 
But in truth, the choyshech that is associated with the gimoration, with Kesar Chachman Bina, is not because of a negativity, but it's because of a negation with a capital N in the sense that it's a no that emerges because it's loftier than a yes. It's the realization that there are certain things beyond my knowledge that I can't grasp conceptually, yet in spite of the fact that I can't live with them and a constant awareness, they remain present in my life, endowing me with a light and a koach that comes from above how I live on a day-to-day experience. Now, when it comes to keser, keser is representative of the paradoxical unity between the infinite and the finite between nothingness and something. Keser, as the loftiest of the spheros, there's already a discussion in the Ramak and a machlokas amongst the Rishonim of Kabbalah as to what the nature of Keser is. Now, because Keser is the loftiest of the spheros, there are certain Mikubalim that wanted to associate Keser with Ein Sof itself. They wanted to associate the highest of the spheros with God himself, so to speak. Now, the Ramak, thankfully, comes along and he says, God forbid, we can never say such a thing. Because to claim that Keser is identifiable or identical with the presence of the infinite is to claim that when we speak about Keser, we're already applying limited terminology to the infinite, something that in Kabbalah is tantamount to heresy, in the sense that by speaking about something, I'm already limiting it. That speech is a process of gavura, it's a process of forming vessels or limiting something or measuring something so that it can be understood in definable terms. So if I can speak about keser, which according to some mikubaldam was associated with the infinite, that would mean mamela, that would mean naturally that I have the ability to limit and measure that which is immeasurable, thereby applying human form, God forbid, or human limitation to that which is infinite. So the Ramak Paskins and the Arizal and all of our Bali Machshava, the Baal Shem Tov and the Grof follow in suit by saying that Keser, in spite of its lofty nature, is still so unlimitedly far and distant from the concept of God or Ein Sof that it's as if Keser on the highest level in the Lashon of the Zohar is the darkest of dark in comparison to the light of the infinite that on a relative plane, even though Kesar is representative of the highest sphera in the chain of being, when viewed in relationship to the true essence of God, so to speak, in whatever sense that might mean something, it is considered as if it is an infinitely distant representation that has no association with that which it is coming to represent. So what the Ramak is doing, and the Ariza on the following Mikubalim, who are teaching Torah Sinai are doing, are protecting us so that we're able to talk about Kesser. Because if Kesser was identical in whatever sense that might make sense to Ein Sof, anytime we spoke about Kesser, we would be talking about the infinite, which is tantamount to heresy. Now, the Arizal, who very often comes to Bimiyashev Stiros, who comes to settle these oppositional attitudes that the Ramak brings down already picks up on this sense. And he says that when it comes to this machlokas of whether keser, the loftiest part of ourselves, the loftiest part of limitation as it is expressed from within the unlimited, if there's a conversation as to whether keser is representative of the infinite in and of itself, kavyachol, or the creation of the infinite in finite manifestation after the tzimtzum, For the Arizal, if there's a machlokas 
as to which one of these attitudes we must apply to the nature of Keser. For the Arizal, it becomes a binary that is contained within itself, in the sense that both opinions are going to be true on a certain level. And when a person looks at Sharmembe's at the 42nd gate in Eitzchayim from the Arizal, we see something profound. We see that Keser, unlike any other Svira, is actually comprised and contains within itself Treha Fachim, two oppositional postulates which somehow, in a paradoxical wonder of the Pela Elyon, of this wonderment that God, so to speak, has the capacity of placing two fundamentally paradoxical and oppositional postulates within the same statement and both maintain their truth value in spite of the fact that they negate one another when applied to one another, that Keser is this Pela Elyon, is this wonderment, is the place where we no longer have the ability to utilize intellectual speculation or even emotional intuitivity or intuition, but rather we need to access a deeper part of ourselves, which is wonder, which is Pella. And what we said by the first Os in Reish Milin, Os Aleph, Os Aleph, which is associated with Keser, is going to be the same Osios as Pella, because the Os Aleph has the Vav in between, this conduit, this Mesach, that separates between the Yud on top and the Yud on the bottom. So too with Keser, which is the Pella Elyon. It is that space of interconnectivity it is that space where the infinite kisses the finite, where that which is without any limitation and that which is stuck within limitation contains something that have the ability of connecting the two. Like the Ramah says, of Moshe Isserlis says, in his Agos, in the Shulchan Aruch, by the Brach of Asher Yatsar, umafli la'asos, mafli la'asos, and he performs wonders. Mafli is melashen pela. It's from the Lashon of a Wonderment, which is from the Lashon of the Aleph, which is representative of Keser. The Ramos says that Mafli Laasos is Shemakasher Ruchnius Begashmius. That a Kaddish Baruch Hu somehow, some way, through spooky action at a distance, through this incomprehensible level of that which ascends beyond our ability to discern it in any positivistic way, connects that which is spiritual and that which is physical, that which is infinite and that which is finite, that which is dark and that which is light, that which is unlimited and that which is limited. So Kesser already represents this interface, this chiasmic space where two oppositional spaces seem to connect. And these haktamos are necessary to try and understand as we're going to see how Kesser can be experienced from within the psyche of the individual. Midbasari echaze eloikai. And what the Arizal says is as follows, is that if we want to understand how Kesser can contain within itself this paradoxical binary, wherein on the one hand it is associated with God itself or himself, so to speak, and on the other hand it's associated with the spheros, which are creation, which are other than God. So the Arizal says that Kesser is split up into two different parts. Now, in the language of the Arizal, which is something that we'll hopefully come to in future shirim, perhaps after the shirim on the Sphiros, it's going to be associated with the two higher partsufim. And just for the sake of utilizing the language without descending into the particulars of this, on the one hand, there is the highest part of the partsuf of Keser, the configuration of Keser, which is going to be referred to as Atik Yomin, 
as the ancient of days, or ne'etak, which means removed, something that is anciently beyond that which I have access to right now. Like we spoke about when we speak about the 13 tales, Meshanim Kadmonios of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, that these tales come from a place that is beyond our historical consciousness. They come from ancient places. They come from a time before time, which is going to be associated with Atik. And on the other hand, the lower half of Keser, is going to be associated with something we refer to as arich anpin, the elongated face, or erech apayim, or unbounded, unlimited mercy and compassion and grace that a Baruch Hu has for his people as they exist within the limited realm of being. So on the one hand, keser is associated with atik, which means that it's removed entirely from the order of being, and it has no association with the order of being. On the other hand, it's associated with arich, which is going to be the heights of the order of being. So on the one hand, it's entirely transcendental, entirely removed from the space of language, limitation, measurement, and everything that we understand as human beings. On the other hand, it's going to be the top of the entire order of creation and limitation and what we understand as human beings. And the Arizal, ever aware of this deep paradox, says as follows. He says, Keser, the highest sphera, becomes the interface, becomes that place where the infinite kisses the finite where the unlimited kisses the limited without either pole losing its essential and ontological quality. Like we said in numerous of these shirim, there's a difference between a contradiction and a paradox. A contradiction is a contradiction of terms. A postulates A, B postulates B, and A is an opposition to B. And therefore, in order for us to determine something, either A or B is going to reign supreme. Now, the simple fact that there's a relationship in a contradiction means that A becomes A by dint of the fact that B pushes against it. But at the end of the day, both are not going to be true. Either A is going to be true or B is going to be true. A contradiction of terms needs to be settled. A paradox, on the other hand, is where there are two oppositional qualities, yet each one of them remains true in and of themselves, And this dialectical relationship, which offers no synthesis, which offers no settling of which is true, is in essence that which keeps both sides alive. That A and B in their oppositional force are somehow, someway keeping the other alive. The fact that A is in opposition to B and that B is in opposition to A is what gives strength to A and B so that they're both held in abeyance. Both A and B maintain their own individualized existence holding each other up by dint of their oppositional relation, so that both are true in a paradox. Both A and B are true in a paradox. This is represented as we're going to come to the sphere of Bina in what we refer to as Elu Ve'elu Divra Eloikim Chayim. By Elu Ve'elu Divra Eloikim Chayim, it doesn't mean that there's a contradiction of terms and one has to win out over the other, but it means that there's a paradox of terms, which means that both these and those are the words of the living God. But as we associate with limited measurement and language in this worldliness, we must choose and determine a specific side of things. But that doesn't negate that in their ontological purity, both are true. So by a paradox, both A and B are going to be true. And Keser Elyon, Keser Elyon, which is associated with the Pella, with this wondrous form of the unity of opposites, where each opposite upholds its other by way of this negative dialectical tension, 
where the tension in between the two of them is in fact the magnetic resistance that holds both in their form, we're going to see that both A and B are true. That when it comes to Kesser, it is both on the one hand associated with the infinite, associated with Ensof, what the Arizal refers to by way of mushal, by way of a metaphor, and the Arizal is very clear that this is not something that actually exists, but it's a metaphor, is what he refers to as the lowest aspect of the infinite. The lowest aspects of God, so to speak, are represented in Kesser, that interface between infinity and finitude. It's also going to be representative as the highest point of finitude. So Kesser is this interface between the lowest of the higher and the higher of the lower of the most finite form of infinitude and the most infinite form of, of finitude. I'm sorry, rather, the most finite form of infinitude and the most infinite form of finitude. That it is representative, it is the association, is the zivug between the limited capacity within the unlimited as well as the unlimited capacity within the limited. That the highest level of our existence at this point touches the lowest level of the higher existence, something that we're going to discuss much more in this year on Malchus, which is very much associated with Kesser. Now that being said, now we're going to enter in to the discussion as to how Kesser is found in the psychological space of the individual. Now as we said, the spheros are reflected as metaphors, as lived experiences, as phenomenological moods that can be lived out through our own existence that the Adam and their mind and their neshama contain within themselves the potency of the ten spheros that HaKadosh Baruch Hu used to create the world. Now, Keser is going to be associated with the loftiest psychological or phenomenological experiences of human beings. And here we come on to an actual machlokas. On the one hand, Keser is going to be associated with Ratzon, with will with the desire that a person has. And desire, when a person speaks about desire or will, what we're already speaking about is that which precedes any form of manifestation. That the willful nature of an individual or the desire that an individual feels very often emerges out of nothingness. In an autogeneticist, in a in a birth out of its own self, the human being has the capacity of falling into desire. Desire represents all that I want for myself, all that I want for my family, all that I want for my world, in a way that is not yet related to the actual reality of the world. And for that reason, when I'm dealing with Ratzon, when I'm dealing with my Teshuka or my desire for things or my yearning for things, it doesn't necessarily matter whether there are vessels, where, whether there is an actual capacity for me to manifest my desire in any real way, but my desire itself overrides and transcends my ability to have that which I desire. That desire is infinite, and desire doesn't have a particular reason, which is why desire can emerge at any point within a person's life. It can emerge as a sudden burst of inspiration within a person that has absolutely no relationship with what a person has been engaged in. It can be represented in desiring something that is infinitely removed from the access I have at this moment. Because when I access that space of keser, when I access that makif, that which surrounds me, which is not necessarily part of me, what I am accessing is that infinite place within myself 
that knows that there is so much more that I can have. There is so much more that I can have and that I desire and that I want and that I wish I could have that in spite of the fact that my lived experience, in spite of the fact that my lived presence in this world doesn't allow me to have what I want, in my desire, in my idealized form of wanting something and willfully desiring something, I can imagine all forms of presence that it's very often the rutzon of a person which has the ability to attach itself to that which is beyond them. That by Shalash Shuddis, by the third meal on Shabbos, as Shabbos is moving out of itself, as Shabbos is moving beyond that which it gave us, we taste a little bit of this light of desire, what is referred to in the Zohar HaKadosh as Ra'ava Deravin, of the will of the will. And this double language of will of the will represents this paradoxical sense that the engine of desire is desire itself. That when it comes to Chachma, and when it comes to Bina, and all the more so when it comes to the other spheros, those are not based on themselves. Those are situated upon things outside of themselves. My loving kindness that I experience when I'm a Baal Chesed, or when I'm living in the mode of Chesed, is going to be associated with somebody outside of myself that I can express myself towards. Or my sense of constriction and limitation as I experience Gevura, that's going to be based and contingent upon my limiting of something. And even Chachma and Bina, which are still associated with the Molchen, yet they're under Keser, those are knowledge of something. That's the knowing of something. There's something other than Chachma or Bina that are necessary in order for Chachma and Bina to take place. But by will, Ratzon is built on nothing other than itself. Ra'ava Deravan, that the interiority of desire is in fact desire itself that I don't need something to desire. I simply desire as a human being. I will for things beyond that which I have right now. And in that experience of will, I have the ability of conjuring up in my mind all manners of things which I don't necessarily have access to, other, otherwise by way of will and desire itself. Now, in other places in the Zohar, Kesar is going to be associated with a very different phenomenological lens. It's not necessarily going to be the lens of desire and willful wanting of something, but it's going to be the trait of ta'anug, of oneg, of pleasure. Now, on the one hand, keser is associated with will and desire. On the other hand, according to different Meforshim, and this is expressed at length in the writings of the Rebbe Roshab, in particular in the Hemshech of Samech Vav, where from the, Osi, from the pages of 51 through at least 75, the Rebbe Roshab speaks about this very specific contradiction in terms. He identifies Kesser as on the one hand representing the will that lives based on the desire itself, and on the other hand it's going to be representative of pleasure that pleasure or the sense of well-being or the sense of satiety or a person being present and fully experiencing that which is in front of them, where a person is no longer left wanting, where a person is no longer left desiring, a person is no longer left feeling that something is missing from the picture of their lives, that's going to be associated with the loftiest place in the human experience, which is ta'anug, which is pleasure. Like the Sefer Tzira says, Ein lamalami oneg. So on the one hand, Kesser is representative of will and desire. And on the other hand, Kesser is going to be associated with pleasure and ta'anug. And the way that the Rebbe Rashab deals with this paradox or deals with this oppositional sense of will and desire 
is the essence of what Kesser is. Because as we said, Kesser is going to be a paradox that contains both within itself. When we look at the nature of desire, when we look at the nature of wanting something, want and desire is based on the hope of wish fulfillment. It's based on the sense that there is something that is out there that is not here right now. There is something in reality, there is something in my mind's eye that is possible, yet in spite of its possibility, in spite of its reality, it is not present in my life right now. When I want something, when I desire something, the implication is that there is something that I am missing. There is something that I don't have. Lu Yitzur, if a person had the capacity of imagining a person who was absent of desire, that would be an individual who had everything, who was fully satisfied. So Ratzon and desire and will are based on the absence of something. In its simplest form, it's that I don't have something. There are things that I want, but I do not have them. On the other hand, when we look at Tainugam, when we look at pleasure, we're actually dealing with, on the simplest level, the opposite to not having something. Pleasure is based on satiety. Pleasure is based on satisfaction. Pleasure is based on when a person has experienced that which they've hoped for. When there is nothing missing of klum chasim ribes hamelech, oneg is associated with Shabbos. Shabbos is a time where a person has the ability to taste what it means to be full in this world, what it means for a person to actually access that place of plenitude within this world. Because during the seven days of the week, the world operates according to lack and privation and things that are not present. And Shabbos is associated with oneg because on Shabbos it's a bechina of me'ein olam haba of what it will be like in the future when things are fully present and there's no more desire on a relative level. So on the one hand, ratzon and will and desire is associated with chisaron, with lacking something, with not having. On the other hand, keser is associated with ta'anug and pleasure, which is seyidi, where I'm not wanting of anything, where I'm satisfied, where in this moment I have what I need, where in this moment I have what I am. I simply am in the moment and there's nothing that I am seeking and klum and I desire nothing. That there's no more chayfetz, there's no more chuka. Chuka and desire and will is run by absence. There's something missing and therefore I desire that thing which is missing to be in my life right now. Tainug, on the other hand, is built on presence, which means that there is something here right now and therefore I don't need anything else. And it's specifically by Kesser that these two applications can be true at once. Like we said, and this is based on the Rebbe Rashab and Hemsach Shamach Vav, that the Arizal says that Kesser is built of two aspects. It's built of the lowest expression of infinity and the highest expression of finitude. That it's the lowest level of God, so to speak, and the highest level of being. It's the interface between that which is unlimited and that which is limited, and it's the place where they kiss. It's the chiasmic structure where A becomes B and B becomes A by dint of the oppositional force that maintains them without allowing a synthesis to say that it's really A or that it's really B. Something that would be associated with the settling of contradiction and not the upholding of paradox, which is the place of faith as we're going to see. That by Kesser, by the interface between what it means to be a conscious individual and what it means to have access to that deep unconscious space where the self dissolves into the collective, where the limitation dissolves into the unlimited, where the human being represents that 
that where the human being recognizes that at the depth and the core of my psyche, at the depth and the core of my psychological individuation, I am nothing but a representation of the infinite unindividuated klal. At that place of keser, ta'anug and ratzon dance with each other. Pleasure and desire dance with each other. Because while in the world of limitation, pleasure and desire are two oppositions to themselves, and that when I desire something, I can't be fully pleasurable, and when I'm in pleasure, I can't be desiring something because they're built on two opposites, one based on absence and one based on presence, that I desire that which I lack and I take pleasure in that which I have. In the space of Kesser, having and not having, desire and pleasure allow for the other to operate within the same space. So that by keser, on a certain level, a person can say that what it means to experience keser on a certain level within ourselves is to recognize that there's something that I don't have, but in my recognition of not having it, I experience the sense of having it. It's that realization that at the end of the day, I cannot positively determine the parameters or define what it means for there to be something that is infinite, what it means to have relationship with Ein Sof. But it's specifically within this limitation. It's specifically within the failure of language to capture that which I'm trying to say, that I find access to the presence of something. That it is by not having access to the essence that I grasp the essence. By dint of the fact that the loftiest place within my experience is one of desire, within that desire itself, when I come to terms with realizing that I will always desire because I can't have everything, that's where I come to a place of pleasure. That's where I come to a place of satisfaction. And like we spoke about so often in the Shiraman addiction, it's a satisfaction that comes by way of desire. That there's a pleasure within wanting something. Because when I want something prior to having it, that thing exists in its idealized infinite form. Prior to its descent into the limited qualities of what it means to be a conscious human being, my unconscious exists in all forms of fantasy, in all forms of things in their idealized form. My Rebbe Rav Weinberger said, when it comes to the first letter of Rav Yisrael Salanter in Igros Musser, Rav Yisrael Salanter says a famous line, Ha'adam chafshi b'dimyono, that a person is free in their dimyon, is unlimited in their imagination, and they're limited or they're contained within their seichel, within their intellectual and intuitive processes. And in the world of Musr, which is associated with the limited content of what it means to be a human being, typically the way that that keta, the way that that pasuk is read is as follows. Ha'adam chafshi b'dimyono, a person is free in their imagination means that the imagination allows for a person to fall into this abstract space of freedom where they can fall into all sorts of sins and transgressions and failures. But it's specifically with the seicha where a person is going to be chavish themselves, where a person is going to have control over themselves. Or if Moshe Weinberger, by, by way of Darach HaChasidus, by way of the Baal Tov, interprets it differently. That ha'adam chafshi b'dimyono, it's specifically in the dimyon of a person, as Rav Kook speaks about so often, that a person has access to freedom. Freedom to live with two oppositional traits in one. Freedom to live with the awareness of the fact that I want something and I desire something so deeply. And in recognition of that desire, in recognition of that unsatisfaction, 
that dissatisfaction that abides in the heart of what it means to be a human being, it's specifically there that I have access to that tanug. It's specifically there by the place of keser, by the place of ayin, by the highest point of what it means to be a human being, where I come to realize that there's an infinite distance between what it means to be a human being and what it means to be God, so to speak. That That no matter how high I elevate myself on the rung of being, no matter how high I climb up the rungs of the ladder of what it means to be a ben adam, what it means to be an individual, which can be Adam Elion, like we said last week in the name of Simcha Bunim Pshischa, that through our imagination we have the ability to be Madavik Takadush Baruch it's specifically in the recognition of our limits, in the recognition that our desire is infinite, and because our desire is infinite and it can never be satisfied, that is where the satisfaction comes from, by accepting our desire, by accepting the fact that even in the moments of presence, that even in the moments where a person feels full, and satisfied, there is still a rumbling of ratzon, there is still a rumbling of desire for something which is not yet present. That there are two modes of desire. There's the desire for something that is not present, and then when I get it, my desire is satisfied. And there's a deeper level of desire, which is that even when I have what I've been desiring, even when I have what my heart has desired all along, I come to find that at the heart of owning, at the heart of grasping, there is an irreducible sense of desire that abides within it, and that is where the deepest level of ta'anud comes from. So when we talk about the stira, and the Rebbe Rashab talks about the stira of what it means to operate within the realm of keser, whether it means to have desire, whether it means to have pleasure, what we can say is that keser is in and of itself the pleasure of desire, the pleasure that emerges when a person realizes that there's an infinite amount of desire that can never be truly satisfied. And this is where we come on to another aspect of Keser, one that is not expressed in the writings of Chabad or the Rebbe Rashab, but is expressed in the writings of Rabbi Nachman in Lakuta Maran, in Torah Vav and in Torah Chaf Dalit, in the sixth teaching of the first volume of Lakuta Maran and the 24th teaching of Lakuta Maran, as well as the 64th teaching, actually. Because by the 64th teaching of Lakuta Maran, Rabbi Nachman confronts the ontological crisis of faith that emerges when being meets nothing or when limit meets the unlimited, or when something meets nothing, or when the loftiest part of myself realizes its own limitations in confronting that which is above me, that which is perpetually transcendent to me. And there Rabbi Nachman says, after discussing two different forms of kfira, or doubt that a person can fall into, he says that siag l'chachma, the thing that surrounds chachma, the thing that protects chachma, is shtika, is silence. There are certain things in this world, there are certain paradoxes in this world, which are not only unanswerable because we don't have access to the answer because of the limited nature of our intellectual or epistemological form, but rather they are ontologically unanswerable. They are kushios, they are questions that are so real that they can never be answered because they exist simply as pure questions. And at that point of the pure question, which can't be answered, not because we're not smart enough, but because even if we were smart enough, there is never an answer. As Rabbi Nachman teaches us so often that the mode of epistemological knowing associated with Keser is non-knowing. 
that the apex of knowledge is that a person comes to recognize that I can't know anything. That at the end of the day, after all is said and done, after all of the hakiros and the haskala and all of the philosophical speculations that human beings have gone through from the beginning up until right before the end, are nothing in comparison with that which cannot be uttered. And therefore, the only mode, the only phenomenological experience that a person can have when confronting these questions, which, like we said in the name of Rav Tzadok, because of their brightness and their luminosity appear to us as darkness and suffering, is shtika, is silence. The questions that Rabbi Akiva asked and Moshe Rabbeinu asked when confronting the deepest, darkest levels of existence is shtaik kach ala be silent, this is the way it elevated within my infathomable will, says God, that silence is sometimes the only mode of exposure that a person has to confronting the deepest mysteries of existence. And it's a silence that is not born out of a failure of speech, but a silence that transcends speech. The siyag l'chachma shtika, Rabbi Nachman says, that which surrounds chachma, which is a siyag to it, is keser, because keser is above chachma, and keser is associated with silence, the silence in the face of the paradox, the silence in the face of the fact that in the depths of my desire, in the depths of not having, I have the ability to experience a moment of pure having. In the depths of wanting something other than what I have right now, of wanting access to the deep recesses of my unconscious that precede keser, that precede my desire, that precede what I want in my life. There's a deep abiding sense that wherever I am, there I am. At that moment, I have the ability to access a, a point of ta'anug, a point of presence of satisfaction deeply embedded within the dissatisfaction of desire. And Rabbi Nachman says in Torah Vav, something incredible. He says, you want to understand what keser is. You want to understand the loftiest level of what it means to experience godly presence in this world, in the ontological form of the spheros, as well as in the epistemological and psychologically lived form of being a human being. He says, you, we have to understand the nature of keser. And to read from Torah Vav as follows, he says as follows. Rabbi Nachman says that the b'china of keser is going to be associated with the name of Eke, Aleph He Yudke, which means Anna Zamin I am prepared to be. That everything I know, all of my experiences, the sum total of what it has meant for me to be a human being in my individualized and collective sense, has led me to that place where I realize that I have not yet begun to be. That at the apex, at the top, at the loftiest place in my experience, I come to realize that I have not even started yet. And at that moment, when I allow myself to become vulnerable, when I allow myself to own the realization that even where I thought I was satisfied, I'm still desiring, that's where I have access to the nature of Anna Zamin Lemeheve, that I am prepared to be now. I am open to the sense that what I thought was being, what I thought was who I am, is nothing compared to what is coming, is nothing compared to the pure potential that exists and exceeds all limitations of imminency that transcendent boundary that opens up vistas of infinitude and nothingness with a capital N in front of the person. Rabbi Nachman says as follows, V'zebechinas keser. And this is the aspect of keser. Ki keser lashon hamtana. What does keser mean? Keser means to be patient and to wait. Here Rabbi Nachman is letting us in on a secret that is loftier than the secret of ta'anug and ratzon, that is higher than the teachings of desire and satisfaction and pleasure, but it's the apex of what keser is, and that is patience, that is the ability to wait, that is the ability to be open to something coming out of 
something completely other. That's the ability for us to sit at the apex of our experience and realize that at the end of the day, I don't know what is happening. That there is an infinitely deep level of more that can emerge onto the scene. And the only way that I have access to it is by being patient, of not seizing, of being present to myself, of not wanting to gain more, not wanting to satisfy, and not wanting to experience desire, but rather simply the ability to wait patiently for that which will emerge, for that which will arrive. Bechina's tshuva, it's the aspect of tshuva. It's the aspect of realizing that everything that I've done until now is still broken in relationship to that which can become better than what is right now. Like Chazal tell us, somebody wants to purify themselves, there's a help that comes from beyond themselves. There's an otherworldly help. And Chazal tell us that what, do you, what is a muscle for tshuva? Someone who wants to buy an afar simon in the shuk, Someone who wants to buy a fruit in the shuk, and the shop owner tells them to wait, be patient, be present. Don't push, don't rush, don't try and seize, don't try and violently assume and determine what it means to be a human being, but open yourself up to the fact that we are born out of infinity, that at the depth of our unconscious, there is a deep form of nothingness that transcends any level of something, a capital N nothingness. And based on the Pasuk in Eov, which says, Wait for me just a moment and I will give you life. That Katar by Eov, which means to wait, is going to be the same letters as Keser, the same letters as the crown and desire. And here, we access the deepest level of Keser, which is the level of Amuna. That Keser is representative of, of faith, of the ability to believe in something beyond their rational assumptions the ability to trust in the process, the ability to go with the flow of ourselves, to realize that we are simply the expression of an infinitude that is constantly and consistently flowing and overflowing into the space of our minds and into the space of limited existence so that within ourselves we contain the all. Within our limited experience we contain the infinite. And this is the four forms of Keser, in their psychologically and phenomenologically lived form. There's ta'anug, there's the pleasure that comes through ratzon itself, the pleasure that comes by way of desire, the having something specifically by way of not having, like Rabbi Nachman teaches in Torah Haftalid of naga ve'eno naga, that I only touch something by dint of the fact that I can't truly touch it, and mati velo mati, that I reach something by dint of the fact that I can't reach it. Because the typical way of reading mati velo mati, reaching and not reaching, or naga ve'eno naga, or touching and not touching, which are languages of the Zohar, is sequential. That at one moment I don't touch it, and the next moment I touch it. At the moment I have it, and the other moment I don't have it. But for Rabbi Nachman and for our tzaddikim, the way it's expressed is simultaneously. That it's mati velo mati, specifically by not reaching something, do I have the ability to reach something. Specifically by realizing taflis ayadiyah do I come to knowledge. Specifically, by realizing that I can't touch something, do I come to have a touching of it? It's this mediated immediacy. I don't have access to something being immediate without levushim, without limitation. But in my realization of that, I have an immediate relationship to that which I'm trying to have a relationship with. It's specifically by way of distance and by way of keser that we have access to this. And what it means for us in our individual lives is to recognize that 
the desire, the undying desire that we have, which emanates from the loftiest place of ourselves, the desire that is built on nothing but the nature of desire, the Rava, the Ravan, can find satisfaction in the realization that we need to wait with faith. We need to wait and be prepared to realize that Hashem will give us that which we don't have, that a power greater than ourselves will offer us the tools that we don't have in this opportunity. And in that way, we get to live the unconscious itself and the unconscious form of life as expressed in Kesser begins to descend into the conscious form of life as expressed in Chachma. If Kesser can be described as the unknown, Chachma, as we're going to see, is the unknown known. It's the ability to understand Kesser in an embodied form, in a way that's no longer just us, but in a way that can be intellectually and epistemologically grasped through the right brain of Chachma, as we're going to discuss next week, Amir Tzashem.